Uh, my family's here today. My wife is uh, Amy, uh, the beautiful girl sitting right there with the blue dress on. Uh, and I have a precious little boy, about 15 months. His name is Cannon. Um, he is a bouncing baby boy in all. He's a bouncing baby boy. Um, so he uh, fits the description perfectly. Uh, this morning, the pastors uh, did not give me an easy task. Um, because this morning we're going to talk about the holiness of God. This is our final sermon of this series, Grace the Lord. We've been walking through Psalm 145 for the summer. Um, and so today we are going to settle in on that last verse. Um, but before we do, I, I, I had a really hard time figuring out how to give you kind of a picture of what the holiness of God is. And so, um, so I had to go this route. Some, some people would say the gr some of the greatest inventions known to man were maybe like the light bulb. That would be one of them that they, that's Toby. Um, some would maybe say that's the telegraph. And for those who don't know what the telegraph is, that's a magnificent beard. Um, some would say the printing press was one of the best inventions known to mankind. Um, or maybe, just maybe, more modern invention, the Segway. How about the Segway? I think the vest is my favorite part. But I want to propose to you this morning that one of the best inventions known to man is the commonplace burrito. I love the burrito. Why do I love the burrito? Well, because it has many nutritious things in it. And for many college students, it's the one-stop shop for your daily nutritional needs. I mean, think about it. You can take the burrito, the tortilla, and you can wrap up whatever you want. They have all sorts of burritos. They have breakfast burritos. They have regular commonplace Mexican burritos, um, they even have seafood burritos, which I would not recommend. Uh, but the thing that I love, I just love, I love getting some steak, I love getting some lettuce, some pico de gallo, I love getting some, uh, some rice and some beans, and to top it all off, a little cilantro and a little bit of chipotle ranch sauce. Anybody with me? Chipotle ranch, that's some, that's some good stuff. So... <clears throat> So there are a few things that are more delicious to me than a burrito. Um, and like I said, it provides a complete meal. And so I think what I love about it is the fact that it wraps all the things that I love up into one thing. And so I want to suggest this morning that that's not entirely unlike the holiness of God. Um, we would, uh, let's look at Psalm 145. Verse 21 says, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So we see as a bookend to this exaltation, this Psalm 145, that David is bringing all of these praises of the attributes of God. This is a bookend. This is his final praise uh, to him. He's extending, he's extending the praise to all creation. All creation can bless his name. Uh, but he also uses refers to God's uh, 
holiness in relation to his name. And that was, that was interesting to me, because why, why is his name holy? Like, we know he is holy, but why is his name holy? Uh, so we have many different names that we can call him. There's several different. Um, we have Elohim, which just basically means God. It's, another, it's the Hebrew for God. Uh, we have El Shaddai, which is God Almighty or All-Sufficient. Um, so, I mean, maybe it's that name that, that he's talking about here. Uh, or maybe it's, um, maybe it's El Roy, sorry, El Roy, which is all-seeing, meaning that he sees all. Uh, there's nothing hidden from his sight, which is pretty impressive. Or how about El Alam, God everlasting, meaning that he never goes away. He never wears out. I mean, that's pretty incredible. Um, so I could see how that would be pretty, that'd be pretty holy. But what about Yahweh? Yahweh is the one name that we have in the scriptures uh, and where the Lord actually defines who he is. It's the only thing that he says that you should call me. In Exodus 3, uh, Moses comes to the burning bush and you know, the Lord gives him his instruction. He says, where should, who should I say sent me, Lord? Who should I say sent me? And he says, say the I am sent you. Um, and a little ambiguous, you know, like if I was Moses, I would probably be a little confused. Um, but this name means simply that he cannot be limited to a definition. So if we said that God, his name was, was El Shaddai, he is God Almighty, he is God all-sufficient, it still limits him because he is also all-seeing. He is also uh, omnipotent. He is also omniscient. He is, he is all of these things. So if we just pull out one name and we say he is this, then we're basically excluding all the other things that he is. So he defines himself in a verb, basically. I am Yahweh. So uh, this name, Yahweh, um, he doesn't limit himself, um, and but but why why does he pair holy with his name? Uh, his attributes of holiness are the essence of who he is. Uh, basically, uh, I'm referring to a Baptist theologian named Timothy George. He um, he refers to this holiness as uh, he says that it so defines the character of God. that it can be said to include all of the other divine moral perfections as well. So God's holiness is like a burrito, okay? Just go with me here. God's holiness is like a burrito. His perfect holiness wraps up all of his attributes in perfect union. Um, <clears throat> so his attributes, all the things I just listed, you know, all the names that he has, the fact that he is omniscient, the fact that he is almighty, um, the fact that he is all-sufficient, is all wrapped up in this idea of holiness. So, the holiness of God binds together the attributes into one package. So, this sounds silly. Character cannot be separated from his holiness, though. So, all of his character is understood in light of his majesty and his moral perfection. And so this is a perfect way for us to wrap up the series, is to see that 
we have seen all of these attributes of God. We have seen who he is, but all of those things are because he is holy. So uh, in order to explore what holiness is, we are actually going to venture into 1 Samuel today. If you would turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 2. For Samuel chapter 2, I will read that for us, verses 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes, makes rich. He brings low and he, exalt, he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. So a little bit of context for us here. Hannah is the mother of Samuel, and this is immediately after uh, some pretty trying circumstances in her life. She was barren, was not able to have children. Um, we see that in the beginning of uh, Samuel there in, 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 verse, or in chapter 1. Um, she was also uh, had a husband who had another wife, and that wife was able to have children. And so she was in pretty big anguish over the fact that she could not provide her husband children. And then the other wife gave her a lot of grief over it um, to the point that she went to uh, the place of the Lord, which was Shiloh, and she, um, she laid broken before the Lord. And she asked for blessing. She asked for a child. And so um, we see that um, the priest Eli blessed her. And then there's a pretty key term in the scripture. Um, the key term there is that the Lord remembered her. And so she bore a son, and she named his name Samuel, which means uh, name of God. So now, this is the prayer of Hannah. She is giving praise 
and exalting the Lord for what he has done for her. Um, and so we see verse 1 there. Um, Hannah proceeds to exalt. This is chapter 2. Um, she says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. And so Hannah proceeds to exalt uh, through these passages. This kind of provides the theme uh, for her prayer. And uh, it's a break in the narrative. And uh, if anything, I can tell you that's helpful in reading the Old Testament, um, it can be very challenging, is that anytime there's a break in the narrative and you see a prayer, you see a psalm, you see something of that nature, pay attention to it. It's pretty important. It has some significance, whether it's messianic prophecy or it's simply praising and telling us who our God is. Um, so she is breaking into song. Uh, verse 2, she proclaims God's holiness and, def and defined, um, she defines this by him being set apart. So the rest of this prayer, we're going to kind of break down. We're going to look at how God is set apart, this holiness. We're defining what this holiness is. <clears throat> so if you, um, if you would, let's go on ahead and venture over to verse 3 through 10. And so in, in these verses, she signifies God's otherness, okay? And God's otherness, what I mean by that, um, is that he is, he is separate, he is distinct, he is unique from us. Uh, in the study of theology, that's known as his transcendence, meaning that he is high above, he is different than us, and that we cannot attain that. Um, so this is one of his attributes um, that is known as his transcendent attributes. Uh, but let's look and see what this is. Verse 3. The ways in which Hannah describes God's holiness, we see in verse 3, is that uh, she says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a good, is a God of knowledge. And by him, actions are weighed. So Hannah says here that surely there's no place for arrogance in man, that God is the only one that truly knows. So his otherness, his distinctness from us, is that his knowledge is far superior to ours. We see this in Job. Um, God questions Job, and then he goes in this long explanation of, I've created these things. Where were you when this was created? Where were you when that was created? And it leaves Job to simply say in just this befuddled way, just he has nothing else to say, but in uh, chapter 42, verse 3, he says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. We also see that God's knowledge is not just of what man does or, no, or, or just of, uh, of what is happening on his earth or what's happening in his creation. He also knows what the heart of man he is doing and what the heart of man is saying. And uh, Christ actually pulled that out in Luke 16 when he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, "'You are those who justify yourselves before men.'" But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is, a, is an abomination in the sight of God. 
What Christ is talking about is he's talking about the pride and the arrogance in the heart of the Pharisees and the way in which that they are, you know, you see these outwards, outward actions that the Pharisees are taking, but what he's saying is that the Lord knows the intentions of their heart. I would venture to say that none of us in here can rightly look at everyone in this room and say, I know what the intentions of your heart are. Um, it's a pretty humbling knowledge to know that his knowledge is supreme and above ours. But we can also rest assured that because of his knowledge, he is all-knowing. We can know that everything that he does is done in the context of knowing things that we don't know. He has the full scope. He has the full picture of things in mind. So, like an engineering student who studies as best as he can for a major exam and still fails to perfectly answer and take all of the, the, uh, all of the complex physics and factors into solving the problems, he still fails. So we are, with as much knowledge as our, of our problems as we could possibly attain, we stand before an all-knowing God, humbled at how we do not know how to solve the complexities of our lives. But he does. So my question to you is, how is your heart proud today? How is my heart proud today? How am I arrogantly thinking about, oh, I know that this needs to happen in my life. I know that that needs to happen in my life. That's simply speech that's laced with arrogance. So God's knowledge is matchless. We move on to verse 4. It says that, um, it says, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. So here we see that there is no other strength like our God's. So here the language pictures God as a warrior. He breaks enemies' weapons. It's pretty fierce, pretty intense. Not the way that our, Christ, our Christian culture often pictures God. Um, I think Psalm 37 kind of gives us a, a more clear picture of what this is. The wicked draw the sword and they bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own hearts, and their bows shall be broken. Um, so David's speaking of this irony of the breaking of weapons of those that are trying to oppress and trying to hurt others for their own selfish gain. It's an irony in the fact that the very might by which that they take to try to oppress, the very might by which they take to try to conquer and to expand their kingdom is broken. It's taken away from them by the Lord. Last week, uh, Dan showed us um, just a sweet picture of God's preserving character. He preserved Noah on the ark. He preserved um, a remnant. And he used that sweet language that the scripture talks about. Um, it says that he shut them in to the ark in the sense of, of sealing something, of shutting something in. And then he brought them through the flood he preserved them through that time. And then he, he did something as a remembrance to the people throughout all generations after Noah that he would never do this again. And he hung his rainbow in the sky. And it's a picture of his might. It's a picture of his, his promise, obviously, that he hangs his bow in the sky 
who can say that their might is so great that they, hang, that they can hang a rainbow in the sky, that they can hang their bow up as if to say, I'm withholding my wrath from all of the earth. It's a humbling thing. It's such a humbling thing to know um, of God's strength, of his holiness and his strength, that there's no other, that he is set apart in his strength like no other. God's strength is matchless. Verses 5 and 6, she moves on to praising God uh, for his personal provision. So God who, I'm sorry, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. So Hannah was um, pretty severely mistreated. This language here she's using is, is a direct reference to her oppression that she received and a, a direct reference to her experience with the Lord. And so uh, this is irony as well, that her song presents the irony of God giving everything to those who had nothing and taking away from those who have everything. The contrast of the two people here uh, really give us a picture of how there is no limit to his authority. There is no, that the scope of his authority reaches all. It doesn't matter how poor you are. It doesn't matter how rich you are. He is still provider. Then she, uh, she continues on in verse 7 and 8. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. So only the Lord has authority to bring death, life, and resurrection, we see. Uh, only he can bring wealth, poverty, exaltation, brokenness, only he can turn around human fortunes. This is a humbling thing for us as well. Um, as we do our best to provide for ourselves, to provide for our families. Um, our, our friends Trevor and Emily Hoffman uh, can really relate with Hannah here in seeing that God is personal provider, that he is, displays his holiness, his separateness, that he is the only provider that they need. Um, about a week ago, they had a, a baby boy, actually in the back, if you want to take a gander at the baby afterwards, um, add to our collection of young ones. And, um, but before they had a baby, they are actually having a lot of problems with their house. And um, with all the rain that we've been having, their roof was leaking pretty badly. Uh, the roof was leaking to the point that it was actually ruining the drywall. It was actually, I mean, getting into the house. Um, and so as you can imagine, uh, Trevor came to the small group time and time again just asking for prayer and what to do. Uh, had a few estimates, and it's not cheap to fix roofs, um, especially for a church planner who does whatever he can to provide for his family. And so he came to us time and time again, and we prayed for him, and we, 
we were doing everything in our efforts to figure out how we could fix Trevor's roof. And so finally, he, they had the baby, didn't have the roof fixed yet, and so a couple of us were going to go over like last, this past week and, and try to basically put a tarp on the roof until things could be fixed. And lo and behold, the provision of the Lord comes, and he gives abundantly <laughs> when you don't have the strength or the ability to do it yourself. Trevor sends a text out to us this week and says that somebody had come and had fixed the roof free of charge. And um, it's a great blessing to see that the Lord is the provider and I am not the provider for my family. That I am humbled before him and that no matter what I do, he is ultimately the source of that provision. <clears throat> Excuse me. God's provision is matchless. She continues on. Um, and I actually already read it there. Um, the, the second part of verse 8 says that, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. What's this language of pillars and stuff? It's not Islam. What, what is he talking about pillars? I, you know, I, don't, I don't understand what pillars are. Well, what he's getting at there is he, he's talking about foundations. He's talking about support. And so the support of the earth, the very ground that I'm standing on, the very ground that you're sitting on right now, is supported and was created by our God. So, obviously, um, we need that ground. Obviously, we need this earth. We need the air. Um, we need a good environment, a good atmosphere to live in, to be able to sustain us. And all of this is created, and the foundations were set, the pillars were set by God. So I just want to encourage us this morning that, that we reflect on this essential, on the essential needs that he provides every day for us, the things that we take like a grain of salt, and we think, oh, I'm going to go fix my dinner. I'm going to go water my grass. I'm going to go take a bath. I mean, just all of the things that he provided. He provided that water for you to bathe yourself with. He provided that food for you to eat with. And that food came from his creation. So we take these things for granted. Um, and we think that, oh, I am going to partake of these things, and it is my own doing, when it is not actually our own doing. Thank him for being the holy source of, of the created conscience as well, that our moral, that the moral, um, our moral ability to perceive right and wrong, everyone has it to one degree or another. As the scriptures say, some are blind to it, and some are not. And some, even when they're blind to it, they still have a basic understanding of right and wrong. Where does that come from? You think it comes from you? I don't think it comes from me. There's no way that we could be the source of our own moral understanding. Maybe it's society, but where does society get it from? So praise him that he has created 
the human being in such a way that we are created in his image, that he has withheld the devastation of sin on this earth through his general grace and his general provision, even in the, even in the human conscience. So we see that he is, a, he is a magnificent creator. He is a beautiful creator. His creation screams that there is a higher being that brought it to be that is outside of us. He is completely other in his creating ability. God's creation is matchless. Verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. So we see here the language of darkness. Um, We see the language of wickedness. Adversaries of the Lord. Um, Again, that warrior language of being broken to pieces. This idea of thunder in heaven is something that's repeated throughout the Old Testament when speaking of God's holiness. That that is the best thing that we can really describe, um, the power of his presence. So the reason that God sustains... The reason... That, uh, that God sustains moral order in his creation is that he is perfectly pure. So we see that there is no other pure like our God. That language of darkness uh, really reflects on 1 John uh, 1.5 where basically God states that, or John states that God is light, referring to his moral perfection, that he is, he is morally perfect. He is the definition of what morals are of what uh, of what man was created to look like and so in opposition to his light Hannah contrasts the wicked who he cuts off in darkness there's no mistake that she uses the language of darkness there he is light the wicked live in darkness it's a repeated theme throughout the scriptures and uh, we see this even in first Samuel when talking about the kings and whether or not they'll be successful we can give thanks for our God that, that he does not have evil or darkness within him. So sure, this brings us to humility, but we also see that our Lord, that our God, is morally pure. And thank him for that, that he is who he is, that he is completely different than us in his purity. He defines purity. The fact that he is pure and we are not shows us that we are not holy as he is holy without his work on our behalf. So we're left with some pretty despairing news when we look at the fact that he's perfect and we're not. God's pure goodness is, re- is matchless. She continues in verse 10, first part of verse 10 there. Uh, And Hannah says, "The, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. So 
So we see, uh, we see here, I'm sorry, I'm going to continue on. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And so we see this language of judge, of judgment, that he is the ultimate judge. There is no other judge like our God. Uh, he is the judge. Uh, judges here on earth, we, you know, we, think of, um, we think of the court system and how messed up and screwy it can be. Uh, the judges, uh, they're given authority, but they're only given authority over a certain vicinity. And then even within that authority, you know, they sit before excuse me, they sit before the trial, they determine who is guilty, and they rule. They take the input and evidence from the jury, and they rule. They make a judgment. Um, when they hit the gravel on that table, they make a judgment. The trial is over, or so we think. Trials come back to case, back to court all the time because more evidence presents itself they only have authority um, over that trial, but it can come back to trial, and their judgment is sometimes overruled, and the person is declared innocent when they are declared guilty before, or vice versa. So the human judge is very limited, but the scope of God's judgment the scope of his rule, the authority is endless. That he, uh, he ultimately has authority over the whole earth. It stretches to the ends of the earth, as she says. That there is no limit. His judgment is truly final. He is the ultimate. He, his judgment is the only thing that matters on this earth. So... What somebody says about me, <laughs> there's probably a lot of you saying that I wish he'd teach a little funnier or teach a little different, but what somebody says about you doesn't, doesn't really matter when we look at the scope and we look at the fact that God's judgment is ultimately what matters. God's perfect justice is matchless. And then finally, she pulls out in that second part of verse 10, and she says, if you're asleep, you might want to stay awake for this part. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. We see here that Hannah is referencing a king. It's twofold. Samuel, he is the prophet, he is the judge that brings about and anoints the, next, the king, Saul and, and David. So he brings this earthly kingdom. Um, but this is also the first place in the scriptures that we see any language of the anointed. It's the first time we see that, that understanding of there being an anointed one. And so the scope of, of this is twofold, that the Yes, there is an earthly nation of Israel that is coming, and there is a kingship that is coming. But second, that this is the first, that this is, that there is a, a bigger king, that there is another king coming. Some idea of this anointed that we're not sure of at this point. So it has massive significance when we look at the rest of the scripture, and we take it and we zoom out, and we look at the whole entirety of the scriptures, and we see there is an anointed, there is a king that God establishes 
that only he establishes. And just one little point of illustration or uh, application for us here is that when we think about the fact that he is king, that he establishes his king, and that he is savior, we have to think about who is actually sitting on that king's throne in our hearts and in our lives. Are we actually dethroning him? Are we dethroning him by trying to make judgments and trying to rule our own lives without allowing this God who is matchless rule? His salvation is matchless. So a few things that we can bring uh, away from this understanding is that we are wretched, (laughs) that we have no hope, that this God is so different than us, then how in the world could we possibly be in his presence? How in the world could we possibly worship him? Um, I would say those are pretty good things to pull away from that. But if we stop there, then we're not, we're, not, uh, we're not seeing the whole picture of God's salvific plan, are we? So a few things. First of all, truly, we should fear the Lord. And um, our focus on the New Testament, our focus on Christ, often lose sight of the fact that Without him, we do stand before a righteous and holy God. And we are wretched sinners that deserve death, that deserve destruction because we have rebelled against him. And just as, just as Isaiah stands before him and seeing that these angelic creatures are worshiping him, claiming his holiness... The first response that Isaiah has when he comes before the throne of God, before the presence of God, is, Woe is me! Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Fear of this being that is so much bigger than us. Reverence is born of a spirit that is in complete acknowledgement that I am not God and he is. That is where our reverence comes from. I am not God, but you are God. He is so different from us. He is so different from us that our very being should dissolve into non-existence before in his presence because we are able to cleanse we are not able to cleanse ourselves of our evilness of our wickedness so my question for us and for myself is do I dwell on that enough do I think about and tremble at the thought of a holy God who has every right to annihilate me off the face of the earth at any moment do I fear and do, do I really see him as being so different than me that it humbles me to reverent awe of him? And I confess that I don't, that I do not do this, that, that so many times in my weekend and my week out, it's about my plans and it's about what I am doing that week and my kingdom and how I control even the slightest of things even whether or not my child goes to bed at night. 
because I want peace and quiet, <laughs> as we all do. So my question is, do you fear the one who swallowed up people into the earth in the scriptures? Do you fear the one who annihilated those who improperly worshipped him by touching um, the Ark of the Covenant? Do you, improp- do, do you properly worship him? Do you properly fear him? Um, fear the one who brings all other gods into submission to him? Church, our reverent awe of God should proclaim what those angelic creatures proclaimed. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. The second application we can pull away from this, though, is that we must confess our sin and receive his pardon. So we're left with a pretty deep and despairing picture for ourselves uh, when we see the holiness of God. Because we're not like him, he is other. In comparison to him, we are not all-knowing, we are not strong, we are not provider, we are not creator, we are not pure, we are not judge, and we are not savior and king. Our response is that we are wicked by nature, just as Isaiah realized. But um, this is where our great hope comes as well, that we can exalt the Lord for he has provided So part of his holiness is that he is set apart in his provision, that he's set apart in his kingship, he's set apart in his saving ability, his salvation, and praise be to him that part of his holiness is the fact that he provided what only he could. So this separateness is not just a picture of he's so different than us, he's so different than us, he's so different than us. It's he's so different than us that he provided what we could not provide through Christ that he provided a way back to himself. Romans 5.19 states, For as by the one man's, talking about Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So exalt the Lord, for he has provided a king to perfectly obey by sending the person of Jesus, his only son, the anointed that he has provided for us. Holiness is an attribute that we can reflect and worship through, through the power of Christ. So we do have hope. We have hope in Christ that we can be holy as God is holy, but it's only through his provision, it's only through what he provided that only he could provide. Now, what I'm um, trying to say here is that um, it's not that we are holy as he is holy as if we accomplish these things by any means. Um, because if we try and we make efforts to be perfect, we will fall short every time. And that's why we need the gospel of Christ. So exalt the Lord, for he did not close the trial when he saw the reoccurring evidence of my wickedness. He foresaw my life before I was born, 
His judgment of you and of me was not made based solely on the evidence of what we bring to the table. It was made on what he knew was going to be final, and that's when he made his final judgment. Praise God that he is gracious and merciful in his holiness, only like he can be. My question is, have you received this pardon? Have you taken of this great mercy that, he, that only he can provide? Because you know that you're wretched, because you know that before a holy God, you don't stand a chance. Just like I don't stand a chance, just like every human being that's walked this earth doesn't stand a chance. The anointed one of Israel has proved God to be gracious and merciful to you and me, for we truly deserve death. So I please, I plead with you, please receive, receive, receive him. Last application. So we practice holy living as he is holy. First Peter 2.9 um, says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. So we see, excuse me, we see again this picture of light and darkness. And so uh, Peter is referring to the, the church here. And it's also a reference back to the Old Testament when the people of Israel were supposed to be this holy nation. They're supposed to be a kingdom of priests. And in Exodus 19, they were supposed to go up to the mountain with Moses. And they stand, stood at the foot trembling, fearful, and uh, Moses had to intercede for them. And so now we see a fulfillment of this in the church, that we see that the church is this holy nation. It's a royal priesthood. And earlier in 1 Peter, it talks about being holy as he is holy. So exalt the Lord, for he provided someone who rose on the third day to enable us to become this priesthood. I am not speaking of legalistic practices here. I'm not saying you should, you should, you should, because God is, God is, God is. That's not what I'm saying at all. The practice of holiness in us is a direct response of worship to what God has provided in Christ. Our motivation for being a holy nation, for living in such a way that pleases the Lord, is not because I'm supposed to. Our motivation is out of an act of worship and gracious obedience and thankfulness to our God for what he's done for us. I'm close with a, John, a quote from John Piper that's pretty helpful to me. Uh, he's a pastor, theologian, and a writer. Um, he speaks of how this deeper communion with God and the understanding of his holiness uh, kind of brings a change in us as we reflect more on his holiness and on what he did for us in Christ. Uh, he says, Revival happens when we see God majestic in holiness and when we see ourselves disobedient dust. Brokenness, repentance, unspeakable joy of forgiveness, a taste for the magnificence of God, a hunger for his holiness, to see it more and to live it more, that's revival. And it comes from seeing God. Let's close in prayer. And ask the band to come up. God, thank you. Thank you for giving... Um, 
giving me the ability to come up here and to teach as feebly as I can. Um, as feebly as it was, Lord, just ask that you, your word was um, magnified. And Lord, um, as heavy as it is to think and talk about your holiness and as, um, as we resort to silly illustrations of burritos and thinking of uh, who you are and trying to wrap our mind around who you are, uh, Lord, pray that it was pleasing to you that we would take the scriptures and we would chew on them and we would, um, we would see your holiness and your separateness as being something that changes us uh, because it shows us who we are and it shows us who you are. We're thankful for Christ. Thank God, thank you for not leaving us to our own devices. I come to this stage with nothing on the table to offer except for the salvation that's been offered me in Christ. Please bless our time, Lord. I pray that your spirit would be heavy on those who need to know your son and um, that your spirit would be heavy on us who need um, to more properly worship and obey you, Lord. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.